This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4. Did you ever sit and ponder, sit and wonder, sit and think why we're here and what this life is all about? It's a problem. I studied plant medicines, I studied energy work, I studied breath work, I studied all of these different things to to be able to at least know what my baseline of feeling good is like, because we often go about our work days not really realizing that we're blocked, realizing that our energy is kind of clogged, realizing that we're having trouble breathing. We We do this every week, every day, and we don't realize how unwell we are. And so I just wanted to be really proactive about like, what does it feel like to actually feel deeply connected with my body so that I know when I am unwell? This is Anna Mina, aka Anshao, producer at Five and Nine. This is Dorothy Santos with Five and Nine. When we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, what does true inclusion look like? What does wellness look like in a culture that celebrates overworking ourselves at the expense of our bodies? Kim Osebo Ateche supports BIPOC organizational leadership to get in touch with her ancestry as a form of healing, but also as a form of a larger ethos of practice she calls intuitive leadership. We continue season two at five and nine with a powerful tale of the transitions our guest has had to navigate. For Filipino American History Month, that's this month, October, Kim talks about the wayfinding tools we can learn from our ancestors, the role of holistic healing in a capitalist society, and the unexpected grief that can come with being able to choose our own careers. The music for today's episode is Life's a Funny Proposition After All, composed and performed by George M. Cohen in 1911. About a thousand different theories the scientists can show, but never yet have proved a reason why. With all we've thought and all we're taught... Kim Asibarteche is an educator, cultural worker, interdisciplinary artist, cultural strategist, and healer, amongst many other things. Her artistic practice explores hybrid cultures formed by analog and digital technologies, the movements of immigrants in America, and the relationship between these two aspects within understanding Filipino diasporic experiences. She's currently the co-director at Berkeley Art Center and is an adjunct lecturer at San Francisco State University. And more recently, Kimberly founded Alaya which is an organization committed to navigating the intersections of social justice, liberation, intuitive practice, and wellness work. Their aim is to help people and organizations learn ways towards liberation as well as grow and expand their healing resources so that, as Kim has put it, the love they give their community mirrors the love and care for their own healing. Welcome, Kim. That was a really generous introduction. Thank you. (laughs) There's so much to talk about with you. Because I feel in many ways, the first time we met, you were finishing up your master's. Yeah, I was in my last year of grad school at SF State when we met. kind of wanted to, to ground us in this thing that I, I read in Trisha Hersey, who's the founder of Nat Ministry. You know, she wrote the book, Rest is Resistance. And I think this is, I, I'm going to share this with you. And then I'm going to ask you a question following that because she writes, Our everyday behaviors and false beliefs about productivity drive us into behaving in a robotic machine-like way. The way we hold ourselves and others to the life of urgency is white supremacy culture, and we'll never be able to rest or be liberated from oppression while we are honoring and aligning with it. Liberation and oppression cannot occupy the same space. It's not possible. We Mm -hmm. must go slow and place intention at the forefront of this disruption. 
This work is not simply a reminder to rest, but a full interruption in turning toward a rested future. This is political work that is unafraid to step into the light of our dark shared history that is recreating itself through our individualistic and disconnected delusion of what is really happening to us when we don't rest deeply. So with that, I want you to actually talk about Aliyah first and and how this relates to what I just read. Well, first, I will start off that it is October. It's Filipino American History Month, right? And when we think about labor and rest and productivity and all of these things, as Filipino Americans, Filipinx Americans, Filipina Americans, Pinoy Pinais, all of the many different ways we call ourselves, we can't forget the reason that we are here in the United States and across the diaspora is because of exploitable labor, is because of all of the vast resources and riches that our country had that other countries wanted to mine, right? So Mm -hmm. when we think about our bodies being exported into these other places to get us to where we are now, um, we have already these ingrained expectations of capitalism, white supremacy, and colonialism, right? I founded Elia. This, This was like years in the making of working really deeply with different community organizations within the cultural heritage district and taking on these different roles as an educator within different institutions and realizing that there's a way that nonprofit work really gets us to believe that we need to sacrifice our whole selves for the work. That should not be the case. That is not sustainable for everyone, for anyone. It's extractive just the way that capitalism is designed to extract from us. Even the term Elia, there's a few different meanings. It can mean the internal or the internal part of town, particularly where my family is from in Batangas, it can mean north sometimes, but it's always in relation to something. So it's like north of your uncle's house on the corner or Mm -hmm. north of that store that's on that street, right? So you kind of, you're going internal, but it's always relational. So the idea with Elia is that your north should be in relationship to where you need to be. And that we should be able to define what our North is and not be expected to conform to these larger ideologies of capitalism and colonialism and patriarchy, right? That we have all of the power to be able to define what our North and what our goals and what our life should be. We've all been in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings in so many different spaces, but how much of it actually connects the work between liberation and wellness and anti-racism. Like it is an actively anti-racist act to care for your full mind, body, spirit. You brought up the cultural district and just wanted to clarify that was the San Francisco Filipino cultural district. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I've realized, even from your artistic and creative practice, which I feel a lot of people don't realize that when you are an arts administrator, you're also oftentimes an artist. So you have to vacillate between, you know, these different roles. And this is actually a part of what you were talking about related to extraction. What have you learned from witnessing your parents' immigration story about related to the work you're doing now? This is so complicated. I have some grief around this. Being raised Filipino in a Filipino home but going out into American schools, there is a really different 
experience that you have, you know, at school, they ask you like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. And I've been having those conversations with my mom. And granted, this was like a very, very different time. My mother was born in the 1950s. Right. And there was no, there were no questions like that. There were no choices for my mom. It was either you get married or you become a nurse. There's no options. Right. And so even the, the framework of the quote unquote American dream is so it's really complicated because my mom didn't have an American dream. That's not why she came here. She came here because she had to, because there were no economic opportunities. There were no opportunities for her to do anything different with her life besides become a mother and a, and a wife if she had stayed home. And so I think about my experience and myself being an artist and coming to grips with the idea of possibly disappointing my parents by not becoming a nurse or a doctor or engineer or any of those things. The fact that we get to dream about what we want to do, it's a blessing. But I also just, I hold a lot of grief because I, when I asked my mom these questions, she didn't have the privilege of dreaming. I'm feeling very emotional listening to you because it's a very similar experience. <laughs> And I mean, you know me, I, I'm such an yeah. emotional person. I mean, we talked about your, when I, I remember the, all those years ago when we met in that cafe in San Mateo <laughs> and I cried because I told you how I had never seen anyone's artwork touch me in such a way that it really encapsulated a lot of this visibility, hypervisibility, you know, related to our parents and mm -hmm. their immigration stories, your parents allowed or maybe I should say gave way to that their that their journey and their immigration to the US was a way for you to to live that life. And I, I trust me, I I definitely that resonates so deeply with so deeply with me that there is a grief that's attached to that. Yeah. But I wanted to invoke Xiao Wei, our our other collaborator on five and nine. And we talk a lot about grief and loss in relation to transition and changes, which is the theme of this season. Something that Xiaowe shared about grief being an expression of love, mm -hmm. that it is, it's another expression of love because when you grieve, it's kind of this understanding that there is something that you miss. There's something that has been lost and you want to honor that because grief is also equally as important as the joy that we feel in anything. And so I get that. I love talking about this because this is a conversation that I often have with a lot of my other healer friends. We're all queer POC folks, and we've already gone through the different stages of quote unquote coming out, right? Like coming out to your parents as an artist, like coming out with your sexuality, your preference and, and um, you know, pronouns and all of these different things. And so to come into this transition of like, oh, actually, my ancestors have been talking to me for like 10 years now. And I've been trying to ignore them because I don't know what to do with it. And I don't know what people will think of me when I tell them that they've been coming to me really vividly in my dreams and in my meditations. It's, it's mm -hmm. such an interesting part of transition, because it is it's a reawakening because they, you know, when the ancestors come, they don't, they don't stop until you pay attention, right? And so again, with Elia, the larger reflection is that with all of the clients, so I do energy work, Reiki, breath work, Akashic records readings, and 
the kind of consistencies with all of my POC and diaspora clients is that their ancestors have been talking to them and they've been trying to get through and everyone has been ignoring them. And so it's like, how do we integrate all of those dimensions of that kind of life and that part of our heritage that we leave at home when we go to work, right? I don't know what it looks like yet, but I know that there has to be a way that it should be aligned because these are the ways that our people existed in ancient times, maybe not even more than like two generations before us, that we were so in communication with spirits and land and all of these different things. People have been trending into these kinds of topics, whether that be through like plant medicine or farming or all of these different modalities that people want to gain connection with themselves and with spirit. So, you know, I, I, I really feel like there's another reawakening that's happening with our generation. Life's a very funny proposition after all. Imagination, jealousy, hypocrisy, gall. Three meals a day, a whole lot to say. If you can, for our listeners that are not familiar with energy work, would it be possible for you to actually define it for us in relation to what you just shared in your reflection about reawakening? There's so many different ways to describe energy work. What I say to my non-magic friends, not my non-magic adjacent friends, or, or my friends who are not sure what to believe yet and everything is made up of energy, right? Like plant cells, atoms, all of these things hold energetic charge. Our bodies are literally made out of water. And we've seen all of the experiments in the past of what happens to, you know, the bowl of rice when you speak kind words to it versus when you speak unkind or mean or or damaging kind, like words to the bowl of rice. Like how does it grow and flourish versus how does it deteriorate and compost and all of these different things, right? So we're all made of energy, even the floorboards, our doors, the buildings that we live in, right? And so it goes back to that notion that everything that we absorb, whether that be through social media, whether that be through interactions with our coworkers, our friends, our family, our bodies take energetic toll and impact, um, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's negative. I'm trained as a Reiki practitioner. And what that means is the laying of hands, what we what we hear about in the Bible and Christianity, these are all practices that have existed in all of the different cultures like across the world for many years. And so really it's just the the moving of all of these energies and the clearing of these energies out of out of our bodies so that we can feel whole and abundant and joyful again after removing all of the things that don't serve us. So we say these things all the time like inhale all of the good intentions that you have and exhale the things that don't serve you. There's many different ways to do energy work, sometimes through breath and sometimes through the laying of hands and so many other different kinds of modalities. But that's basically at least the the framework that I'm working in when it comes to energy work. I actually appreciate the fact that you shared literal relation with the objects and things, life, non-human, human beings that 
actually impact the way we also allow a reawakening to happen if we facilitate that. And I think in many ways, we also need help doing that, you know, yeah. the relationship with work. I've been reading Rest is Resistance and nodding as I'm reading through it because I oftentimes forget, oh, this is this is what happens when you don't rest. This is what happens when you don't actually pay attention to those relationships. And I think one of the things I also was curious about, you did mention some of the aspects of your healing practice that you're also learning from your clients and mm -hmm. this ancestral work of mm -hmm. delving in and understanding how to, I guess, get unblocked. I think me being an artist, they often say that artists, the way that their brains work often, like, you know, if I'm drawing, if I'm uh, working on collages or textile work, the same things that, or the same parts of the brain that activate when you're in a creative practice are the same parts of your brain that activate when you're doing like an intuitive or spiritual work. The creative practice definitely helped get me there. But the thing that really got me to stop and like stop messing around with ignoring the things that were coming through was mm -hmm. my reproductive health. I had periods that lasted 25 days long. You know, again, there's so many complications with the medical industrial com uh, complex here in the United States. I went to four different doctors and no one could tell me what was going on. And that's when I started to look into herbalists and acupuncturists. And there came a time where I actually, it was my, my tattoo practitioner, Lane Wilkin, who was like, actually, there's a baby that's been hanging around. And I think the baby has a message for you. And I think you need to pay attention to it. Ultimately, it was like, there is actually a lot of disconnects between my spirit and my body because I'm working so much. I don't have the time to dedicate to my healing around sexual trauma. So all of those things kind of combined and feeling really disconnected from my body, from my cycle, which one of the other things that I'll point out is that our womb space, regardless of your sex or gender, like that is also the home of creativity, right? Like that's that is our creative biological portal, right? So the same energy that we hold in our wombs is often mirrors the energy that we have in creative practices. And so there came a point where I was like, you can't keep ignoring this because there's a lot of things that you need to heal both physically and spiritually before anything else in your life will make sense. And you need to stop ignoring it because ultimately at the end of the day, how much you participate in capitalism won't matter as much as your connection with your body. Yeah, there were so many things. I, I studied plant medicines. I studied energy work. I studied breath work. I studied all of these different things to, to be able to at least know what my baseline of feeling good is like, because we often go about our work days not really realizing that we're blocked, realizing that our energy is kind of clogged, realizing that we're having trouble breathing. We we do this every week, every day, and we don't realize how unwell we are. And so I just wanted to be really proactive about like, what does it feel like to actually feel deeply connected with my body so that I know when I am unwell? Kim, thank you, first of all, so much for your vulnerability. We've been talking about this at Five and Nine, this image of the wounded healer, the person who had to work through their own wounds, their own struggles, before they could extend those gifts to others. I was looking at the work you're doing for Elia, 
you have a retreat coming up called Intuitive Leadership. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this, about this transformation that you've gone through from your personal experiences, these deeply personal process of healing that you've been going through, and what it looks like to extend that to other leaders, especially other leaders of color, other queer leaders, those who've had to go through their own struggles and tend to their own wounds. I put the course out there not really knowing how it would land with people. I know people are still very nervous about being connected with ancestors. But again, the learning that I get in working with my clients, their ancestors are often coming to me and saying, hey, believe in yourself. Stop doubting yourself. I know that you're feeling stuck in this job right now, and there's so much more out there for you. There's so much power and empowerment out there for you. If you stop listening to those voices that tell you you're not worthy, that is often like the most common feedback that I get from ancestors that they're like, hey, Kim, tell this to whomever you're working with right now, because they need, I've been trying to tell them this and they haven't been listening to me. Often when I'm in my own meditation spaces, my ancestors are like, hey, you should charge $200 for this kind of service, right? They're always encouraging me to heal through the money wounds that I have around not charging enough for my work. That often feels like really scary in my body to be like, oh, actually like stop charging uh, not enough for the worth that your work has. Um, so my, my, when I'm meditating, my ancestors are often like, Hey, put up your website, like stop messing around, put your website up right now, or do this kind of workshop. They're often like really guiding me because they see all of my potential, which is very counter to how we exist within capitalism, within work. When we are out there and we're working, there's all of these reasons for us to doubt ourselves, Right. Again, capitalism is so extractive and it wants us to fit in these tiny little boxes so that we can be good workers. But when we're in communion with our ancestors, they're like, nah, you're the shit. Like, you're amazing. Keep going. Like, believe in yourself. It does feel really scary in some ways to be able to offer that kind of framework to my community and to people who are really actively seeking out that kind of work. And at the same time, it's such an incredible blessing because we forget that we're magic. Like all of us are literally all magic. And we've endured so many years of colonialism and patriarchy and misogyny and all of these different things that have tried their hardest to make us really, really small. But our ancestors are still coming through and telling us not to listen to all of that. It's a really beautiful roller coaster of a ride to, you know, put the work out there and see how it lands with people. You always, Kim, you always make me cry. No, you don't. I always cry. (laughs) It's the sweat from your heart coming out your eyes. (laughs) Oh, no, I love that. I also, you know, Nikiko Masumoto, artist and farmer, queer farmer, I was part of a cohort uh, with with her, and she reminded us that crying is the irrigation system of the of the soul of the mm-hmm. body. And I, I I think the reason why I'm wildly emotional when I listen to you is because there are so many things that I have realized in my own life, professionally, academically, creatively, ways that I haven't actually listened. 
to the ancestors in my own life until until recently. I also wanted to touch upon your role as an educator in the community mm-hmm. and what being a teacher has actually taught you. I mean, you're still a teacher. You know, yeah. being a healer is being a healer is also being a teacher. <laughs> but in terms of what you have witnessed in the educational system for yourself and for other students, how do you invoke ancestral practices and listening to ancestors, even with your students mm-hmm. who might not have a, a basis for that? Yeah, I love to flip the question of what artists inspire you or what inf- uh, what artists influence you into how do we treat them the same way as we would treat our ancestors, right? Like there is a reason that their work is out there and is influencing you. So instead of having that conversation of like, what artists influence you? I start with Carlos Villa. I always teach Carlos Villa first, regardless of whether I'm teaching like a multidisciplinary arts class or if I'm teaching a photography class. Mm-hmm. And we start with his quote. I'm not sure the original context of this quote, but I do remember this quote being on his prayer cards after he passed. But the quote is, from then until now, through the practice of art, I became who I am. And there's so many layers to that. But I ask all of my students to reflect, like, what does that actually mean? Because I want to ground my students in the fact that art has so much more purpose than finding a job, right? Like, currently, I, you know, I'm adjuncting. And so most of my students are thinking about what kind of job am I going to get or what kinds of internships or what kinds of opportunities? Like, what do I want to do? And I really want to root the students that they came to art as a practice that helped them express themselves and help them become who they are as opposed to a means to a financial end. So I always start with what does it mean to you? How can this practice help you become who you are? so that they have some sort of compass for themselves instead of getting stuck in the grind of hustle to hustle to hustle, because that's what most art students end up doing is just taking gigs and gigs gigs and gigs and burning themselves out. So I want to at least give them some tools of like mindfulness and what kinds of um, practices, like who are they doing this for, what people in their family really inspire them to tell stories, all of these different things so that they're grounded and rooted and hopefully have something to come back to if the grind ever does burn them out. Losing health in search of wealth and through the stream we do uh, everything again and nothing's absolutely sure life a very funny proposition after all. You have always deeply embodied everything you say. So I just wanted to honor that. And I feel like that is such a beautiful transition, speaking of transitions, into the meditation that you have for us. All right. So this is a meditation meant to call your ancestors in and meant to call your ancestors in for your guidance. So I want you to take a moment to ground your feet into the floor, soften or close your eyes, and become present with the patterns in your breath, any sounds that may come up. 
Throughout this time, I invite you to come back to this place of being present. Your active participation contributes to our collective healing. I ask you to slow down just for right now. Our ancestors were skilled with wayfinding, using the stars in the sky to guide their navigation as they crossed rivers, oceans, mountains. Even in the darkest of the night, the moon and the stars brought us light. I'm going to ask you to deepen your breath. We tend to breathe from a shallow place in our day-to-day lives, not allowing ourselves to sink into each moment. As you deepen your breath, I want you to imagine yourself on a boat in the deep of the night with the moon and stars above you. Maybe you're in that boat with your family, your loved ones, or your dog. A cool breeze comes through and crickets and frogs chatter away. You're loading into your boat to journey into yourself. As you start to move through the waters, the brightness of the stars keeps you comfort. These stars, vast numbers in the sky above you, are your ancestors. Blood, chosen, or future ancestors. Their bright lights have been guiding you for a while, but for some reason, tonight, you're particularly grateful and aware of their presence. You continue on in your journey through the ocean. You come to a pause. There's two to three stars that are shining brighter than normal tonight. The faces behind these stars become more clear in your awareness and in your heart. You feel their light shining so brightly in your heart, shedding light in the crevices and caverns in your heart that you haven't seen until now. You find yourself lying down in your boat, staring up into the sky in the vast universe above you, only to realize that that same expanse of stars has always been deeply embedded in your heart. You take a moment here with your hand on your heart to relish in this vastness. I encourage folks to use this meditation and this visioning as a way to continue on in quiet reflection time, or perhaps even journaling, keeping note of how you're feeling with your breath and your body, feeling protected, feeling guided. I invite people to use this meditation anytime they might feel like they need extra support with whatever they're navigating. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you, Kim. During the height of lockdown, I spent a lot of time in the desert, in the woods, camping. And one of the things that struck me was like, those stars were always there. Yeah. Um, They were always there. Mm -hmm. And I, I would just look up at them and I was like, wow, look at those stars and constellations I learned how to navigate by the stars. And my whole life up until that moment, I just hadn't really paid attention to them. And what you said about how our ancestors were master wayfinders, that's totally right. Totally like really Mm -hmm. just, really just hit me. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Five and Nine is an independent podcast and newsletter at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. This show is produced by Dorothy Santos, Xiaowei Wang, and me, Anna Anxiaomina. 
and it's hosted by Dorothy and Anna. While this podcast is always free, if you enjoyed it, we invite you to buy us a virtual cup of coffee. You can subscribe on Substack for just $6 a month. Your generous support helps cover our production costs and honoraria for our guest speakers. Paying subscribers get access to additional content like how-tos, journaling prompts, tarot exercises, amongst other resources to support you in your work and your career. Find us at thisis5and9.com and on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The background music for our closing is Ain't We Got Fun, a foxtrot composed by Richard Whiting and performed by the Benson Orchestra of Chicago. This and the episode music are part of 400,000 sound recordings made available in the public domain this year. And it's all music that would have been popular during the time of the creation of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, one of the most popular and influential tarot decks in the world. Thanks for listening, and we wish you comfort and ease in these times of great change and transition. Remember to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and take a moment of joy wherever and whenever you can.